Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, we're recording this on a Sunday, just before the Everton Man United game kicks off. Uh, so let's get it out. Did you have a nice time yesterday in the fair city of Nottingham? Nottingham is a wonderful city. Yes, yes, all good. It is. Um, uh, and uh, you know, it's always, always good to get an away victory. It's a long time since we won a match, so quite exciting. Yeah, uh, yeah tell me about it, yeah. yeah. Well, you, you were <laughs> positives, Kevin. You were first on match of the day. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth because if the uh, if the match of the day executive who decides the running order is listening to this, you and I are going to have a word, sunshine. <laughs> uh, whoever whoever you are, because what the who the for the for the first time in living memory, Palace are first on match of the day with that. Yes. We beat Man City. We were fifth on match of the day, and there are only four games at. at that. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> Really, it's bad enough to know they're all Spurs fans at the BBC, except for the ones that are Brighton fans. And now there's obviously a Luton fan in amongst them. It's shameful. Kieran, as we said, we are recording this before, just before the Man United Everton game. I've got no doubt that the atmosphere will be uh, febrile, I believe is, is the word we could use for that. But um, we do have a couple of questions about yeah. Everton. I suspect we will be saying that up and beyond and past the appeal, if it ever comes. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of questions each week. The first question on Everton comes from Wayne Wardle. And Wayne says, if the overspenders mainly come in the form of interest payments and loans for the new stadium, how has that created an unfair sporting advantage? Or is it simply a case of it's irrelevant, what, irrelevant, <laughs> irrelevant. It's irrelevant what the money was spent on, and it, it's still an advantage, hence the points deduction. Yes, this formed part of Everton's defence, and you can understand where they're coming from. They won't be moving into the new stadium until 2025, in all probability. And therefore, there is no sporting advantage in respect of them investing in future infrastructure. Um, this was a strict interpretation of a rule by the Commission and, and the Premier League. Um, it's it, it's difficult to get your head round why they've taken such a, uh, a, a draconian approach, um, but it certainly increased Everton's losses and, and therefore had an impact upon the tariff that was given. Um, the, the, the Commission concludes that it's not there as a sort of a moral arbiter in relation to how the money is spent and that there are already uh, exemptions given for what you might broadly consider to be virtue spending in, in the sense of we do want improved facilities, so therefore that's okay. Um, the community scheme, you know, and I've said on many occasions, the Everton one is superb. We've, we've had somebody from the Everton to, to talk about it, uh, academy and, and so on, and the women's team. Um, so even if the commission wanted to give a, give a further exemption, it's, it's effectively tied by the Premier League rules. There is also a case for, however, saying, should the commission have taken that into consideration in relation to ultimately determining the penalty given to Everton, given that there are no hard and fast rules 
and and I think yeah, I think the Premier League has has come in for some criticism, quite a lot of criticism, some of which is is justified. And, and here I would say you've had the rules for ten years and you've not got around to saying how we think that offences should be dealt with. Now that's either because the clubs themselves can't agree and effectively have have passed you know passed a buck or nobody's thought of it, neither of which I think reflect well on the decision makers. Yeah, I've been reading a lot this weekend, Kieran, the last couple of days, especially about people's opinions of what will happen uh, when the appeal goes in, as it inevitably will. I can't say I agree with all. Martin Samuels at the Times, who's normally, even for an ex-male writer, is normally quite restrained, but seems to be arguing that FFP shouldn't be there in the first place and that any club who has more money than the other should be allowed to spend it, but also using it again as a stick to beat the Premier League and saying, well, this is, you know, you might as well just give the game up to the government regulator. Uh, And again, that willful ignoring of the fact that it's an independent regulator, it's not a government regulator. Um, I, I... I'm, I'm really taught. I, I'm like, my heart goes out to Everton fans, Kieran. But at the same time, Everton fans would expect other clubs to be punished if they were doing the same thing as they will do with with Man City. There's no doubt that, that Everton have blatantly infringed the FFP regulations, and yeah, it shouldn't be the fans that are punished. But unfortunately, that's the case. And this second and last question we have on Everton, Kieran. Um, People like Jamie Carragher very quick to throw words around like unprecedented, but of course his 10-point deduction is far from unprecedented. And fans of many other clubs have pointed this out. Um, and one of them is a Palace fan, who I know, John Vince. As John Vince says, how does the 10-point deduction for Everton compare to Swindon's double relegation, Luton's 30-point deduction and other cases? And are they comparable? And of course, you, you know, Scottish fans will say, well, look what happened to... To Rangers, they got a double relegation as well, didn't they? Yes, um, it's it's complicated. The more that you look into comparative cases, the less clarity yeah. you you reach upon. Um, in the case of Swindon Town, yeah, we are going back thirty years or so. They they were promoted in the playoffs. I think they beat Sunderland. And then it was found that there had been a significant number of illegal payments to players. And this was a sort of a football association investigation more than, than the, the Premier League. So therefore, that's how they were able to be um, given effectively two relegations. Again, was that fair on Swindon fans? No, it's not. There's no doubt about that. In the case of Luton Town, Luton Town ended up with a 30-point penalty. That was on the back of three insolvencies. And in the sort of the old version of the EFL, and we say, you know, I've I've been quite critical of the EFL a few years ago. I think it's a much better beast today. I think it's got people in there that understand finance and understand football and understand the law um, who have far more senior positions. In the case of Luton, some clubs, and I'm not saying that Luton are amongst them, but some clubs, and you and I, who know who we're talking about here, um, deliberately had the owner put the club into an insolvency arrangement to game the system, to buy the back, buy the club back immediately, and not inherit any of the debts. And that clearly was 
an improper way of screwing over local creditors, HMRC and other parties. So the football industry, aware of the degree of scrutiny that it was introduced, that it was subject to, decided to, to introduce these rules that said that there would be sporting penalties. Um, if we take a look at Queen's Park Rangers, Queen's Park Rangers were promoted in 2014 on the back of a bit of shenanigans is the only way I can yeah. describe it with regards yeah. to um, debts being written off by the owners that were being treated as, as quasi-income. Um, they were subject to financial penalties. So Everton are saying, well, you know, QPR only got to the Premier League due to a breach of FFP, to a breach of financial rules. So you can understand that from Everton's point of view. Leicester City and uh, Bournemouth, again, both promoted. There were issues to do with their finances. They were given financial sanctions. So why not Everton? If we look at the most recent cases in respect of FFP, we've got Birmingham City. They were given a nine-point deduction by the Premier League, sorry, but by the EFL. But I think what is very noticeable here is that the, the commission who were reviewing the Birmingham City case did have a very strict set of guidance notes given to them by the EFL, which says, if you breach the rules by this much, you know, I think it's a, you know, an X point penalty plus for each one and a half million pounds, extra, extra, each two million pounds above the limit, a further point, and then you had aggregating and mitigating factors. So there, there were some guidance notes. Why on earth has the Premier League never got round to that until August 2023? It's a classic case of, you know, stable door horse has, has not just bolted, it's, it's emigrated. Um, in the case of UEFA, UEFA have attempted to ban clubs uh, for breaches of financial fair play rules. And remember, Manchester City initially were given a two-year ban from UEFA competition, and we have seen other clubs being given bans as well. So there is no definitive way of saying there is comparable activities because financial fair play only came into existence in 2013, and this is the first case um, that has been held with regards to those particular types of charges. I mean, I, I read Martin Samuel's article as well, and I agreed with some of it, and I didn't agree with other parts of it. Um, yeah, for the sake of transparency, for some reason, Martin Samuel doesn't seem to like me, given that he's commented. He's missed a couple of I've never met the guy, <laughs> um, but he's he's made a few comments. Well, yeah, Philly boots, mate. Um, but... Um, with, with regards to the central premise of financial fair play, in any other industry, an owner can come in and put as much money as they desire. Is there a case for saying that should be the same in football? Well, th there is a case for saying that. And I think that would be a spectacular case of be careful what you wish for, because it then does become whoever's got the biggest sugar daddy becomes the most successful club in, in football. Um, and it does reduce competitive balance, both domestically. You've also got that issue as well. If it's if we're going to have those rules effectively abolished in the UK, how does that impact upon participation in UEFA competitions and so on? So th there are there are cases both for and against. The more you go into it, the more difficult it becomes. Um, you know, Martin Samuel's headline is 
the Premier League has made uh, accountants and lawyers stars. I don't think it has. I think it's made them scapegoats to a certain extent, um, depending upon what side of the fence you are in respect of particular rulings. All that I will say is that when the rules came out uh, for financial fair play, I read them and I came up with 10 schemes on the first night. And I've said this on you know, more than one occasion. Um, I came up with 10 schemes on the first night. So this is how I would seek to circumvent the rules. And it then becomes a game of financial fair play, whack-a-mole, willy-waving, whatever you want to, to call it. And it's whoever's got the most persuasive accountants and lawyers. And that's not football. Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend whack-a-mole whilst willy-waving. <laughs> which is, uh, I would try and keep those two separate if you possibly could. Uh, although alliteratively, very, very nice. If, it, if it's any consolation, uh, Kieran, I don't think Martin Samuels likes me very much. And we okay. have met. We have met several right. times. That's possibly the reason. Uh, I think I once sat in his chair in a press room recently. The, oh. whole, place went, the whole place went really quiet because he's one of the big dogs. One of the big dogs. Um, I, I, I do feel... Kira, I feel every sympathy for Everton fans, and I was as taken aback by this as they were, to be to be perfectly honest. In fact, even at the Dulwich gig, which was the night before the, the penalty was announced, I was saying to anybody who wanted to listen that I didn't think there'd be a points deduction, and if it was, it would be suspended. But, you know, Barnsley fans will say, Barnsley fans will be very unhappy this week that they've been thrown out of the FA Cup because of an accidental administrative error. It wasn't deliberate, it wasn't malicious, but the rule was broken and therefore the FA sanctioned them by putting them out of the FA Cup, which is the, the known punishment for that. So in a way, that's that's similar to what's happened here, isn't it? I mean, I understand the Everton fans' anger, I understand their bafflement that they feel they're being made an example of and they're demanding that Man City be made the, the same example, but... You can't get away from the fact, no matter how much the figure is, that they have breached FFP regulations. Whether or not you agree with the punishment, and I don't, but you you, you can't get away from the fact that it's, it's a fairly open and shut case, Kieran. And that, you know, we, we've been talking about the potential for this happening almost since the, the pod started. Certainly in the last two or three years, we've had many, many questions about why Everton hadn't been pulled up before and normally the answer was because the Premier League hadn't put a ceiling on how much you could claim COVID had disrupted your finances. Yes, yeah, I think there are there are two separate issues. A, well, three separate issues. A, should we have a set of rules and are the present yeah. rules fit for purpose? For me, that's questionable because yeah. it for me it reinforces the existing gaps between clubs. Yeah. Secondly, has there been a breach? Yes, there is. Thirdly, what should the penalty be? And I think this is the area which has caused the, the most controversy. Um, I, I think it's very much at the top end of, of what I was expecting. Um, I know that the Premier League were pushing for 12 points. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm inclined to go with you. I would have had a, a lower penalty and a suspended penalty. I, you're, you're, on, you're on our naughty step. You've you've got to be seen to be uh, taking that into consideration as you go forward over the course of the next twelve to four twenty four months. So that's why you know, my personal. But at the same time, I've not seen all of the evidence. I don't think 
and, and we talk about Everton and the fans will say, well, if you talk about Everton, you're talking about us. So here I'm going to say, if, if you take a look at some of the comments in that report, it's very much directed towards the executives, the people who put together both the accounts and the PSR calculations. If you are using words such as misleading, and that is included in the Independent Commission report, um, when, when it was said that Boris Johnson misled the House of Commons, when Boris Johnson misled the Queen, it's, it's a polite way of saying they lied. And that, that's not helped. Um, I think if Everton had been a bit more proactive and says, yeah, we, we acknowledge. Um, and again, this comes down to the executives and many of those executives are not there at the club. So again, it seems harsh that uh, the people who are presenting the case on behalf of Everton were not able to to get the comments from the people who were involved at the time. And there's been a lot of bad decisions made at that club. Again, the fans haven't made those decisions. Hmm. We have plenty of questions today, Kieran, about other clubs. Um, the first two are both very interesting questions about Manchester United. And the first of those comes from Ryan Trainer-Smith. Uh, Ryan says there was a furore about sporting integrity when it looked like Qatar might own Manchester United as well as PSG. But hasn't this principle already been broken with multi-club models like City Football Group and Tony Bloom? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Quite right, Ryan. For example, Brighton and Union Saint-Gilois, who are second in their league, could very plausibly meet in Europe in the next few years, please God, no. Is this because of the size of the clubs involved and not the actual damage it would do to sporting integrity? It's a fair question, Kieran, isn't it? It, it is a fair question. Um, I don't think Tony Bloom expected Brighton to be in Europe. As a Brighton <laughs> fan, I didn't expect Brighton to be in Europe. And UEFA investigated uh, Tony Bloom's relationship with those two clubs and has, has brought in rules. And this was also applied to Aston Villa and yeah. their owners. Um, Tony Bloom has now had to divest of his interest in USG. Brighton are not allowed to, to sign players or to loan players to, to USG. So UEFA are taking this um, harsh, you know, I think significantly. Um, we've not seen it at other clubs uh, to the same extent. Uh, I think you know, Watford and Udinese, where you know, we've had 20 transactions and we, we've commented upon that. There, there doesn't appear to be an appetite from the domestic legislat legislators. Um, UEFA here, I think, are probably one step ahead. There's a much broader issue going forwards, uh, for, in my opinion, with regards to what are FIFA going to do, because Manchester City do own clubs. We've got uh, you know, the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, which owns Newcastle, has, owns four clubs in Saudi Arabia. But what happens if Al-Hilal and Newcastle are drawn together in the FIFA World Club Championship? Knowing Gianni Infantino in the way that we do, he will no doubt come up with some uh, long-winded speech which will justify whatever he chooses to justify. Mm. Well, my dad always had a theory about that, you see, with the FA Cup, for example. He always, it's, they always thought it was very easy to um, keep teams apart. You just heated some of the balls. And then, so, you, you know, whoever it was, Pat Jennings would put his hand in the velvet bag and go, oh, that's a hot ball, that's Man United. We keep that one in there until such time as a third division club is available at home. Um, the multi-club, again, this is going to be a question that we get asked again and again because our guest last week, Josh Charalambas, um, lawyer, 
specialising in, in football investment, pointed out that the, by far the biggest trend at the moment is like I think something like sixty percent. I think I can't remember the exact question of uh, potential takeovers in Europe last season were as part of multi club deals. So this is this is an area that's only going to be causing more complications for UEFA and FIFA in future, isn't it? You're absolutely right, um, and and Josh was was superb guest, and and I, I certainly learned a lot, um, and and reinforced some of my existing. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a pretty laid back person, but it, my my feeling of discomfort in relation to the expansion of uh, MCOs and also the motives behind them from some of the organisations concerned. Oh, you sound like one of those people who think the Americans are going to come in and, and scrap relegation and make us all franchises. We'll be the Crystal Palace. Oh, there's not there with Crystal Palace Cowboys. Yeah, that'd be all right, wouldn't it? I wouldn't mind Crystal Palace yeah. Cowboys. You double gold. Well, you used to be Glazers. I know a few double you know, Cowboys oh, yeah. and double the Glazers. That, that, very good. Excellent. Um, obviously, I was thinking of a few for Brighton there, but we are a family show, so I think we'll leave it, <laughs> we'll leave it there. Um, the Brighton so- Chip Steelers. <laughs> This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Sal Busa has another question regarding Manchester United. Uh, and Sal says, what happens once the takeover is complete at Man United? Would the new owner simply acquire the shares the Glazers own currently at an agreed price per share? Would the new owners, given they may not be American, be required to keep the club on the New York Stock Exchange? Uh, is there any way they'd be able to take it back to being private and not a publicly listed company? I presume, Kieran, if the if the deal happens is the Ratcliffe deal for 25%, then these questions are rendered redundant. But I think they're good questions anyway. Well, I think Manchester United will still be quoted on the New York Stock Exchange, even if Jim Ratcliffe does acquire 25%. So we'll just try to unpack those questions in time. Um, 
would the new owner simply acquire the shares the Glazers own currently at an agreed price per share? From what we are hearing, um, the Manchester United board were genuinely fearful of a lawsuit coming from other shareholders if the only people who were allowed to sell shares to Jim Ratcliffe would have been the Glazer family themselves. So it would now appear that there's going to be a, a combo offer um, put forwards. So we, we will expect to see that. Now, the price that's being quoted in the media is around about $32 a share, which I find a bit strange, given that the market price at present is $18, and we've not seen a, a surge in the price um, in respect to that. So I'm, I'm treating that with a degree of caution. Um, as far as the club still being allowed to trade on the New York Stock Exchange, that, that should be fine. Manchester United is registered in the Cayman Islands. So if it gets acquired by Jim Ratcliffe, who is not quite sure where he's based, you know, whether, yeah, and again, that's a, that's a broader issue. Are the shares being acquired by Jim Ratcliffe in a personal capacity or are they being acquired by Ineos? Um, but because it's only a minority acquisition, there's no reason why a Cayman Islands registered organization or a UK or a Monaco registered organization cannot itself be quoted on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, is there any way they would be able to take it back to being private? Yeah, you just you just put in an offer for all of the shares. I mean, that's what Sheikh Jassim was purported to be doing, buying 100% of the shares. And if you own 100% of the shares, there's nothing to be traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So the company automatically becomes delisted. Uh, how many other shareholders that aren't Glazers are there, Kieran? Um, there's there's 160 million shares in total. Um, the the Glazers own 70% of that. So you right. know, 70, 70, 7 16s is what, 64 plus 48, that's what, 112. So it's probably about 48 million shares in, in the public domain. Um, so you know, a significant number. Um, sorry, what would be gained by stopping those people selling those shares, Kieran? Um, the the gain to Jim Ratcliffe is it works out a lot cheaper. Ah, okay. Because he's only buying a quarter of the shares. The gain to the Glazers is that they, in my view, both spectacularly um, have their cake and eat it in the sense that, first of all, they get a load of money. Secondly, Annie upward movement in Manchester United, they've still got a significant number of shares, so therefore they're going to benefit from um, the increase in the value of Manchester United. And thirdly, if anything goes wrong at Manchester United, they say, well, look, you know, Jim Ratcliffe's in charge of the football, it's nothing to us. We're, we're just you know, a bunch of American investors. We don't understand the game anymore. We never understood the game. That's why we gave it to the, gave it to the Limits. So um, that, that's, that's the position. It's, it's cheaper. Uh, the but also Avram and Joel Glazer don't want to sell all of their shares because they are convinced that the football club is hugely undervalued by both the US markets and the world in general. Uh, I remember going to visit a mate of mine, Kieran, who was coaching in very far upstate New York, which turns out to be surprisingly redneck out in the rural bits near the Canadian border. Um, and there was a few of us English people out there and it's, it's one American chap was absolutely furious when he kept calling us limeys and we kept not being annoyed by it right. and I, I had to explain to him that I said what well, I think three of the people here have got no idea what limey means and also 
in the great scheme of things, being compared to a citrus fruit isn't that insulting, to be perfectly honest. Right. You, there's loads of things you can shout about, about us English people, really. But yes, yeah. Yeah, not mentioned our teeth for a start. Well, exactly. So we, yeah, yeah. We, we, we'll take the citrus fruit. Yeah, but finding issues. a cure, finding a cure for scurvy 200 years ago, that's not yes. most insulting. <laughs> it turns out, Kieran, we have a third question on Manchester United, and it comes from Connor Griffiths. And Connor's question is this, as and when the Man United takeover goes ahead, how much tax revenue will be generated, if any, and is there any legal mechanism to force the payment of any tax on the sale of the club? Right. As as far as the UK exchequer is concerned, the, the likelihood is there's going to be no tax benefits. No. The reason for this is that ultimately it's going to be a private sale of shares from one person to another. The vast majority of Manchester United shares are owned either by the Glazer family or by um, investment funds. I think the likes of a, there's an organisation called Linzel Train and there's a few others that own sort of, you know, significant percentages of the, the shares which are traded on the New York Exchange. So if they sell their shares at a profit, then they would be subject to what's referred to as capital gains tax in the USA, and you'd probably, as long as as you've held the shares for at least a year, you'd end up paying 20% on on the profit. So if you you bought a a share for $10 and you sold it for 18, it's an $8 profit, 20% of that, it's it's $1.60 tax per share that you sold. Okay. Uh, Nick Phillips has an interesting question, Kieran. Nick says, I've been using the LiveScore app for a couple of years and find it is very useful for stats and keeping up to date with multiple live matches. I've also noticed that they have a betting arm called LiveScore Bet. Is this business primarily a gambling enterprise or is the match update service a business that could survive without the gambling side? Yeah, I, I use that app as well. It, it, it is a good app. Um if we take a look at the LiveScore Group, which itself is a subsidiary of a company called Anzo, um, Anzo, I believe, is based in Jersey, so you know, where we were a couple of weeks ago. Um, it LiveScore and LiveScore Bet are separate, but it's it's the same logo and so on. Looking at the breakdown of revenues, I would say probably eighty percent of the revenues are generated by. LiveScore Bet, which also owns Virgin Bet, and probably around about 20% is generated from advertising, and the advertising mainly comes through the, the LiveScore app. Um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a new company. It, it's very much a startup. It's losing a million pounds a week. So you know it, it is reliant upon funding. Um, what makes me feel slightly uncomfortable is that if you take a look at LiveScore Bet in particular, it's got companies based in Gibraltar, Malta, Nigeria, the Czech Republic, Austria, um, places where corporate governance tends to be slightly more cloudy. Um, and also the attitudes towards gambling and, and so on, um, slightly more relaxed than here in the UK. So uh, that's that's not necessarily great in my view. Uh, and the people connected with the companies, they'll say, well, yeah, well, we, we can set up wherever we want. Absolutely. You, know, you can do whatever you want. Um, but yeah, well, I've often referred to Caesar's wife. It's, it's good to look to be transparent. It's good to be, if, if we've got gambling, we do have a gambling commission in the UK. Um, it's more difficult to deal with organisations which are uh, spread across a myriad of countries. 
Uh, next question, Kieran, comes from friend of the show, Stuart Hatcher. Uh, Stuart says, what anti-money laundering rules do football clubs have to comply with and what sanctions would they get if they breached them? It's an interesting question, Kieran, given the huge amounts of money um, that Premier League clubs um, are swapping in transactions twice a year, basically, in the transfer windows. Yes, so, so I, I looked at a recent report into money laundering in football, um, and, and I quote directly, it said, professional football's complex organisation and lack of transparency have created a fertile ground for the use of illegal resources. Questionable sums of money with no apparent or explicable financial return or gain are being invested in the sport. That's quite a damning comment. Yeah. Um, so does money laundering take place in football? Yes, it does. We are both aware of one club which was being utilised by somebody for money laundering purposes. Uh, for legal reasons, we cannot name that club, of course. Um, and, what unless, are the rules? Unless, which... unless, Kieran, you come to one of our live gigs in which I imagine you'd only be too happy to name that club. <laughs> possibly comment um (laughs) so so what are the rules that football clubs should be applying because they they could be subject to scrutiny and remember we we have seen in respect of the premier league itself in terms of the owners and directors test um that is a form of doing due diligence in respect of background and money laundering. The EFL have certainly upped their game as well. Um, as, as far as what the club should be doing in respect of transactions, they should be doing due diligence because these are million pound plus transactions. They should be reporting any suspicious activity. So they should be self-reporting. You, effectively, we're saying that if you are a multi-million pound organisation, then you should have some form of compliance department, which is saying, let's just check that we are in accordance with the rules. You should have a risk management strategy, and that should be embedded into the governance of the club um, and so on. So um, there are no specific rules that you see in sort of the Premier League handbook, or the EFL handbook, but there is a broader um, set of compliance with international transactions. The only trouble with that is it doesn't tend to cover domestic money laundering issues, which may or may not exist. Uh, oh, okay. By by which I'm assuming you're implying they do. Uh, no, silent. Yeah, nothing. No, they're, they're, no, no, you might infer. Uh, that doesn't mean that I imply. <laughs> you went full Mount Rushmore on me there, Gear. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Moving on, you're on to the next witness. Paul Glover has this question, Kieran. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Paul Glover says, do owners ever take a salary from their club or do they only take dividends? Um, Very rarely do owners take dividends. Uh, Dividends are given to shareholders. Now, I think Manchester United, we've taken up a fair amount of this show. Um, They famously paid quite significant dividends between 2016 and 2021, um, around about £22 million a year. Those went to the Glazers and other shareholders. It's been a very rare occurrence elsewhere. I think Swansea City, it happened. Um, but when it comes to salaries, yeah, there are quite a few owners. Um, uh, there was uh, when Blackpool got to the uh, Premier League, and famously their wage bill in the Premier League appeared to be lower 
than their wage bill in the championship uh, in terms of getting to the Premier League. Um, somebody, um, somebody whose surname was involved the word Oyston, took out around about £11 million as a salary uh, or as a payment. Um, we have seen people such as Ken Anderson, who is the former owner of um, Bolton Wanderers and has been associated in the last few days with a potential bid at uh, Reading Football Club. Uh, I think it's fair to say I'm, I'm not particularly keen on that. Um, Bolton Wanderers fans, I think, and Reading fans have been in communication. Um, they will know the reason why. Um, he, he said, I, I've, I've never paid myself a dividend or a salary. And that is indeed correct. He did, however, pay himself £625,000 as a consultancy fee. And his son, Lee uh, Anderson, was also paid £125,000 for services to the club and yeah and to be fair um there's a there's a very nice picture of lee anderson wearing a bolton wanderers tracksuit um wandering past a chip shop and it could be that he's doing it as a, as a you know as for marketing the new kit that, I, I, that could be the case um so you know people are taking money out not necessarily as dividends through other means some owners you, you know steve parish at palace you know he's taken out substantial sums not in the early years of his ownership but in recent years he's taken out seven figure sums um from the club in the form of a salary you look at what's happened at west ham when david gold and david sullivan they both lent the club money and what they did they say again we've not taken out dividends we've not taken out um money in the form of salaries but we have paid ourselves £20 million in interest over, over the period of the loan. So there are a variety of routes through which uh, owners can extract money from the club. They can rent premises to the club. Okay, I'm, not, I'm not having a go at Steve Parrish, but that's what he does, as you're, you're aware, through his club, uh, his, his company, Smoke and Mirrors Group. So if you want to get money out of the club, there are ways and means or you can simply go to the club secretary on a Tuesday night and demand that they empty the safe and give you the contents of the safe. I can't remember which former owner of which club. And I can't remember how many years he was banned from football. But you know, that's one that comes to mind as well. Yeah, I can't, what was his name? I keep thinking itsy, bitsy, teeny, weeny. Yellow polka dot. Um, I should point out to people listening to this, by the way, that um, Steve Parrish's group is actually called the Smoke and Mirrors. That's the name of his mm. company. Kieran wasn't um, dropping any hints there about Steve no, Parrish's no, 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 no. business. No, um, no, no. And, and also, I think, I, think, it's a, I think it's a gag. I think it's a good gag. It's a gag, Kieran. Let's, okay. Let's, okay. Let's, let's agree. Let's leave it there. So he has a comedy <laughs> professional. Let's. Let's leave it as it's it's a gag and not make value judgments about whether or not it's good or bad. Um, and to be fair to the Andersons, I, I understand that the price of fish has gone through the roof lately, so it's quite possible that that 125,000 quid was simply buying 10 cod and chips, basically, at a, an upmarket yeah. fish and chip shop. So I don't, know if it does, I don't know if the price of fish can go through the roof, really. It seems a bit... <laughs> Our next question New podcast comes there. The <laughs> <laughs> oh, think of the puns. 
Think, oh, sorry, I, yes. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't catch that, Kieran. I'm a bit hard of hearing. <laughs> ah, Lordy. Ah, it's got a terrible habit. Anyway, bye, bye, after. <laughs> oh, that's gone long ago. I've put something else on the shelf now. I've got a statue of Smudge on the shelf now. I'm not going to get anything else put there, are we? Our next question comes from Rory Woods. I, uh, I did initially plan to suggest that Rory Woods' dad probably really likes golf, but then I realised that you don't choose your surname, do you? Unless he, he loves golf so much <laughs> that he changed his surname to Woods by Deepo. But Rory, Rory Woods has a question. Um, again, this is an area that our listeners are always interested in. Rory wants to know, how does the Premier League TV deal break down around the world and how are they negotiated? For instance, the rights would surely be worth more in the UK than, say, Cambodia. So does the Premier League have a minimum amount they need to achieve to provide an international broadcaster with the rights or is it purely at an auction to the highest bidder? And if it is an auction, is there anything to stop collusion locally to essentially secure rights at low price? I'm particularly interested in that part of Rory's question. The Does the Premier League have a minimum amount or they need to achieve or is it actually just goes to the highest bid or whatever the, the, the bid. Um, what will tend to be the case is that the Premier League will put out um, bids for individual markets to tender. And there will be a minimum tender price. And they will say, because we don't want to devalue the overall product, if you cannot meet the minimum tender price, then that particular geographical market will have to go without the Premier League. Um, we, we've seen the French TV, uh, the, the French uh, football authorities do that domestically, and there was a, there was a genuine danger that we could, you know, if you're a French viewer, you could end up with nothing to watch because the, you know, the Canal Plus and, and others have said we're not overly keen on the product at present. Um, so, so that's that is to protect, and also for. You know, we know that some countries are geographically quite close to one another. So if it turned out that the Cambodian rights were sold off very cheaply, and here I'm going to show my spectacular ignorance of Southeast Asian geography, does it mean that if you're in Vietnam or if you're in Laos or if you're in uh, your other countries which are close by, it could be that you can get them cheaper using um, you know, a dodgy box from from the next country. So if if Cambodia was selling them off dirt cheap, it could mean that people in Laos in Vietnam would say, well, we'll yeah, we won't pay for our domestic broadcaster, we'll get them from um, Cambodia itself. So in order to protect, I think, the, the overall value of the market, the Premier League will say there's a minimum amount that, that uh, we're prepared to accept. Um, the, that, that minimum amount tends to be met because the Premier League is a fantastically addictive product as far as uh, subscribers are concerned. I think there's only four or five countries in the world that don't have Premier League rights, and that includes Cuba and Afghanistan under the Taliban uh, and North Korea. So you know it's 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 a pretty uh, it's a pretty niche market. Um, is there anything to stop collusion locally to ensure uh, rights at a low price? Not really. Um, you know, and again, trying to police that, I think, would be difficult for the Premier League because you have to have lawyers involved in every market. But again, what I would say is if there is collusion, ultimately the rights are given to one bidder as opposed to another, and there's going to be a winner and a loser. 
So you'd, you'd have to have a lot of collusion to make that worthwhile to the loser of the, of the rights. David McCutcheon has our next question. I th- think this is a really interesting one, Kieran. It's, <clears throat> it's, it's sort of uh, relevant to the Everton case. Um, David McCutcheon says, with so many lawsuits flying around in British football, can you advise at which point clubs listed on the stock market would have to note in their accounts that a huge bill is potentially around the corner? And if a club didn't do that, would it be against FPFL or English Premier League rules? Right. Uh, first of all, it doesn't matter whether you're a listed company or not. If um, if you are a company and you have produced your accounts using what's referred to as UK GAAP, which is generally accepted accounting principles, there is something in the world of accounting called a contingent liability. A contingent liability is an amount of money that you may or may not have to pay in the future which is awaiting as an unyet resolved event. So you've got to wait for the legal case to be heard or a settlement to be made. Now, if you expect to lose the case, you put that sum through your accounts. If you think there is a possibility of you losing that case, you then stick that particular issue in the footnotes. So if we take a look at the Manchester City 2023 accounts, Manchester City makes specific reference as a contingent liability to the fact that they are being investigated by the Premier League. Um, They may have some financial or sporting sanctions as a result. They also say, because we think we're going to win the case, we've not stuck that amount in the accounts. If you take a look at Manchester United and Newcastle United and some other clubs, historically, they've been subject to investigations by HMRC with regards to amounts being paid to image rights companies. Those cases have not necessarily been resolved. So therefore, again, they say, well, we might have to pay out an amount of money. We haven't actually got a clue what it's going to be. Um, And and that sort of, you know, it deals on a broader issue um, because, You'll also find in in the accounts of what I would refer to as as better prepared clubs is they do exactly the same with potential payments in respect of add-ons for um, transfer fees, bonuses to players and so on when certain goals are achieved. And the amounts that we're talking about here can run into tens and sometimes hundreds of millions of pounds. I, I like that word, betterly. That's a good Homer Simpson word, betterly. Betterly, yes, we got that one from. Betterly, pre- that. betterly prepared sounds better than better prepared, doesn't it? I'm, in, I'm intrigued, Kieran. I've heard you mention the the gap thing before. Generally, uh, generally accepted accountancy practice. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, uh, are they guidelines in the accountancy practice, or are they legal outlines? So, uh, when you say that's best practice. Are there people that just go, well, that's fine, that's best practice, that doesn't necessarily mean I have to adhere to them? Well, you you don't have to adhere to them if you can prove that by not adhering to them, you are better representing uh, the, the state of affairs of the club to all of the stakeholders. However, if your club is being audited and the auditors will say, well, look, you've not applied this part of the rules in relation to transfer fees or this part of the rules in respect to 
amortization, for example, therefore, we're not going to sign off the accounts. Yeah, that is the possible downside um, that, that a club might have to deal with. Uh, you know, any accountant worth their salt should know the rules. Um, and therefore, from a professional point of view, if you're seen to be signing off the, you know, if you're a finance director who's a qualified accountant and you've deliberately chosen not to apply the rules, you potentially could be on the on the on the back of uh, you know sort of some form of professional disciplinary hearing. Okay. <clears throat> we end this pod, Kieran, on what I can only describe as a dangerous precedent. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're stepping into uncharted waters here, Kieran, and I'm not entirely sure I want to step into these waters. I'm not I'm not entirely sure whether these stepping stones I'm putting my 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 trainers on are, are ready to take my weight, Kieran. But it's it's I mean this it, it, it's written down. Producer guys written down. It's it says two questions from Raphael Better, and then in brackets both so good. They so both made the cut. PG, which is producer guys friendly way of referring to himself when he talks to the minions. PG, both good. So both made the cut. Now, I mean that's a value judgment. They are good questions, but I think what oh. a sl- what a slap in the face, Kieran, for the people. The thousands of people that are on our waiting list who can't even get one question asked, who have got through to the end of this pod, uh, doing what they do every week so, with their fingers crossed, saying please, please, possibly even putting a rosary bead if they're if from the same background as us, saying please, please let this be the week my question on amortisation is asked, and and no, two questions they're both from the same person. So uh, this is, I want all our listeners to know this is producer guy who's enforcing this precedent on us. And poor old Raphael now is sitting at home thinking, "Oh, please let these questions go down well." It's like when you're trying out new. It's like when you're trying out new jokes. You think, "Please let this. Please let there be some sort of laugh." So anyway, so Raphael's first question. Uh, yeah, it's a good question, Kira. I'm not. I'm not gainsaying that. But it's the first of two, Kira. I mean, this is. I mean, this is really. This is other podcasts don't do this. I'm sure. I'm. I'm sure. Uh, little little Josh Widdicombe. And little Robbie Beckett don't have the same two questions about how annoying their toddler is in a row from the same person. I'm sure. It, I'm sure. It, I'm sure. I'm sure Jack D doesn't have the same question about toilet training your puppy, which doesn't exist from the same person <laughs> twice in a row. This is this is outrageous. So anyway, Raphael, your first question. You have recently shared with us, says Raphael, what happens when a player gets injured and who actually pays for their medical bills. I was wondering, though, what happens in the case of a failed transfer? I assume the buying club pays the fee to bring out the player for medical discussions and so on, but what happens if the transfer just doesn't go through? Who pays the return leg back home? The selling club will be unhappy to fork out money for a player who potentially wanted to leave, and the buying club is no longer interested for whatever reason, so do they send them back in, in coach? Um, which is so indicates that Raphael is American, I understand. Or do they fly them out on a private jet? Finally, do players ever pay for anything themselves? Well, I, th- I think we all know the answer to that question, Raphael. But um, well, sometimes players do. What, what was the name of that player? Who I think he was at Stoke, and Spurs were interested in him, and he drove himself <coughs> down. He did. He camped and he he stayed in the car park overnight, while waiting That's for right. transfer the transfer deadline to tick by. Wondering why the sky cameras were packing up without coming to interview him. <laughs> yes, um, it would be the obligation of the buying club. Um, the buying club makes an offer 
to the selling club. And therefore, this would be deemed to be part of the overall cost of recruitment of the player. Um, and that would include a two-way ticket. Um, whilst I quite like the idea of a, a player arriving, goes through the medical, or his agent says, well, I want 150 grand a week. And the buyer says, not on your nelly. And they just walk out the room and the player's goes, what am I supposed to be doing next? You can, um, make, I like, you can make your own way home. It's quarter to midnight on January the 31st. You can make your own way. The last train to Thornton Heath's are just gone. Mate, you have to get an Uber. Off you go. It's hilarious. Yeah, I think the buying club would suffer severe reputational damage yes, within indeed. the industry by taking such an approach. So um, it it tends to use private jets if you can get hold of them. And of course, our friend Chloe, indeed, um, yeah, we, you know, she she sort of talked, spoke to us through the the process that would would, would happen there. Um, and yeah, quite often clubs have uh, you know jets on standby, and they hope that the the medical doesn't take too long because the pilot has a limited number of hours, and you, and you can't. I don't think you can do overtime as pilots. You know, no, it's, you can't. it's one of those jobs where, yeah. um, you know, you, because of the, uh, you know, the potential repercussions if things don't work out, you'd have to be very strict. So, you know, there, there can be a lot of complications involved. Um, so, yeah, uh, as as much as I really like sort of a planes, trains, and automobiles, uh, <laughs> you know, route home. Uh, it's it's the, the very much the obligation of the buying club. I, I'm not technical, Kieran, so I don't know how long our podcasts um, stay available for. Um, but our friend Chloe, that forever, was just, oh forever, okay. Well, then, yeah. those of you who don't know or are new to the pods, our friend Chloe is Chloe Horrocks, who arranges the travel um, for the Manchester United uh, first team squad, both men and women. Um, it's a, she's. Uh, I, th- I think I'm on the safe grounds here to say she's a proper mank, Kieran. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And she's she's and when she did the live show, I discovered that she has a a glare that Paddington Bear would be very very proud of. When I asked a question that I'd absolutely promised I wouldn't ask her, and then completely forgot and asked her. But she uh, her the interview she did with us was absolutely fascinating. So if you want to look out for that episode one with Chloe Horrocks, then I, I urge you to do so. And the second question from Raphael Better, um, it, I think I like I like Raphael's first question, and I'm not going to be cheap enough to go, but this one is better, Raphael. But I, obviously, but <laughs> I, I I did like even better, very good. I I did like your first question, Raphael. This this one I did particularly like because, as you know, Kieran, I always like the sort of question that sounds like it's the result of three or four people sitting around a pub table around about half ten at night when they, they said, well, we should go home, but I don't really want to go home yet. Well, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a cracking question. And Raphael's second question is, what's stopping an extremely wealthy fan from going to their club's website and buying enough shirts to pump up the club's profits and get the better of FFP rules? They could then donate the shirts to a third world country, increasing the support for the club too. This seems like a win-win-win situation in my eyes. And oh, I I think I'm going to hazard a guess, Kieran. The answer is there's nothing stopping an extremely wealthy fan doing that because we we have had rumours about extremely wealthy owners, wealthy owners in particular, buying boxes for themselves and for friends. So, it, what's the answer, what's the answer to this obviously pub question? 
I, I, as you know, I don't drink, so I don't really understand these things. I, I suggest, I presume this is not a, a pint number one question either. Oh, no, no. Is, no, is that this, fair this to is, assume? No, no, no. Pint, pint number one, you're getting, you, you're getting it, basically you're getting, what's, how's the family out of the way, basically, pint number one. <laughs> pint number two, because we're all encouraged to talk to each other as middle-aged men these days, so you do a bit of, you, are you okay if you're not right at work? You're not really interested, but you feel that you, you should ask. And pint number three is... Uh, General football chat. This is a pint four question, Kieran. I would say this is a pint four, verging on verging on pint five, even actually. But let's be generous to say this is a pint four question. Right. Okay. Uh, fantastic question, Raphael. Absolutely nothing to stop a club there from doing this, or an, an extremely wealthy fan. All I would say it's it's not the most efficient way. Yeah. Um, given that most clubs are probably only on a seven percent commission. Ah, so you buy an £80 shirt and the club's making an extra £5.60. Um, yeah, if you want to get a, a million pounds into the club, you've got to sell yeah, 450,000 shirts. Um, I, I think Adidas and Nike and, and Puma <laughs> and, and the other manufacturers are going, blimey O'Reilly, that's, uh, that's, that's a bit of a long run. Um, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, a, a bunch of somewhat startled kids in, in Gibraltar go, Jesus, yeah, we, we, we've just got we've just got four hundred and fifty thousand Coventry City football shirts. What on earth are we going to do with them, or whoever the club might be? Yeah, not to mention the poor sod in the club shop. Who's imagine if the wealthy fan's name was Papadopoulos, and he wants we wants four hundred and fifty thousand of them with the name printed on the back. So I've I've got to go at R five. Um, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that would be very kind of you. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball and it will get you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. Um, and the next of our chats is on um, Tuesday the 28th of November, which is this Tuesday coming at 7.30pm. So that's a Discord session for our ultras only. So I believe that will cost you £5 a month to take part in that, but they're always very lively and very interesting. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show and your name's not Raphael Better, then email us at questions at priceoffootball.com as I think, Raphael, you may have used up all your goes. Unless, of course, you know something about producer guy we don't know and you have the photographs. We'd love to see them. Uh, Kieran and I are going to be in Hastings in December for an event for East Sussex Libraries. It's on Wednesday the 13th and we'll be talking about our new book and discussing a few pressing football finance matters for good measure too. You'll also get to meet us both, which is quite easily done, I have to say. You can grab a copy of the book if you haven't even got one, or if you have, we'll sign it for you. Tickets are free but very limited, so if any of you fancy a night out in Hastings, and I'm not going to read out the next bit because it started a debate about how far away we are from 1066. As somebody accused me of my maths not being very good, which, again, it's like being called a limey. You can, you can call me a lot of things, but... Telling me my maths isn't very good is really is water off a duck's back. <laughs> so, uh, but if you want to come along, um, it's, it's also it'll be a chance for you to meet uh, two very good friends of mine, the Palace fans, you know, young Jack Pierce, who's organising the event, and James Endicott, legendary James Endicott, ex-bass player for the Loop, uh, the man who bought the Libertines, 
to fame. Uh, the man with the best stories in the world, he's down there. He'll be there, the Ginger Viking. Uh, so it's worth getting a ticket just to meet the Ginger Viking, to be perfectly honest. So you can do that by link, clicking the link in the show and register for your ticket. Uh, if you'd like to buy our latest book or one of our other books, get yourself, or get yourself a Price of Football t-shirt. You can find details on our website, priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular news pod. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thank you as always for those people uh, that have been interacting with us, uh, uh, correcting our mathematical and geographical <laughs> errors, uh, of which I am guilty very much of. Uh, we're we're going to get a lot of tweets from Southeast Asia, Kieran. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> we are, um, and, and also those people at Patreon, remember, if you, if you want to uh, have an ad-free version of the show, uh, Patreon members can opt for that. Um, there's other ways to support the show um, and, and that's to give us a review if you want to give us a review for the book those of you that have, have read it that, that helps us with our very good friends at Amazon and other, other publishers of course um, and you can also give us a review of the podcast by whatever, whatever app you use to listen to it um, and it doesn't matter what you say and we're recording this on Sunday and it, and it is a sad day for football so I'm going to say um, if you'd like to say it was, you'd rather have it presented by my two favourite Terrys, and I say this as, as a Brighton fan who's not necessarily a, a Crystal Palace fan, Terry Venables, and of course, my own Uncle Terry, God rest his soul. Well, that would be a chatty one, wouldn't it? it and they're both from, it would be very chatty. And I suspect mm. if you did a Venn diagram, they'd have some friends in common. I, I imagine they would. Uh, I think for all that Terry Venables' career at Palace as a manager ended under a cloud, he brought us some very, very happy times at Sellers Park. Uh, he was responsible for some wonderful footballer, football both as a player and a manager. Uh, probably for Ma Palace fans my age, apart from the semi-final in 1990, that Friday night in 1979, when I'm going to say 120,000 people were in Sellers Park. Officially, it says 55,000, but it's um, yeah, he will be he will be sadly missed by all. In football, and of course, uh, he didn't get on very well with Alan Mullery, so I was always inclined <laughs> to like him. Always inclined to like him. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the